we come to the part of the Shervish where we often say that we hear from the voice of God, for we hear from his word. Today you will hear the perspective of man as we read Psalm 73. Where we have been, you will hear from Romans 5 and how that can change. You will hear from John, the book of John, and how you get from one place to another place by hearing God, hearing Jesus, and actually listening to him. So I invite the first reading from Psalm 73. It's a joy to worship the Lord Almighty with you this morning. Psalm 73, beginning at verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath 
through him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading is taken from the Gospel of John, starting at chapter 4, the fifth verse. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It is about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am here. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It is still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Father Roy. Hi, everyone. 
Uh, my name is Joel uh, Ben David. Um, I'm one of the priests that serve here at the church. Um, if there are any children here um, who don't wish to suffer my sermon, um, you may leave. There is a, a place to hang out in the garden for any kids that may want. No. Okay. We warned you. All right. So today we are going to learn about something um, that the church has taught for 2,000 years, something that is incredibly important to know, but something that many of us sometimes forget, and that is this, that the gospel is not the minimal doctrine of the Christian faith to help you get to heaven. The gospel is not the minimal doctrine faith that you need to have to get to heaven. There are two problems with that statement. One is that the final destination of a Christian is not heaven, right? It is a renewed earth and a renewed heaven, and we'll leave that for a different sermon. But the important one today is to remember that the gospel is not about getting you anywhere. The gospel is for you to change now. The gospel is actually something that changes your life right now, and that's what I'd like to look at um, today. If you were to go to the place where this happened, to the well, it's actually called, it's still called the, the well of Jacob or Bir Yaqub in Arabic. And if you were to go there, you would go to the church, which is on the outskirts of Nablus. You'd enter into the sanctuary. You'd find the stairs that lead down to the crypt. And there you would find the well. And you could drink from the water of that well. And nothing would happen. You would still be thirsty. Today, I want you to find out what it means to drink from living water. And in fact, what that living water is. So we are going to talk about four things. Right? You're going to be all happy. I didn't go, I'm not going to go through this gospel passage verse by verse. Right? Hallelujah. Um, we're going to go through four different things. We're going to see the breadth of the gospel, the process by which the gospel changes us, the power of the gospel, and how it goes to the bottom of your heart. So that is breadth, process, power, and how it gets to the bottom of your heart. Number one, the breadth of the gospel. Right. As many of you have probably heard in many a sermon before today, but if you haven't, I will just go through it briefly. This is a Samaritan that Jesus is talking to. Jews and Samaritans back then didn't like each other very much, right? In fact, they hated each other. And they, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as people trying to usurp their religion or, or take it or they've changed it. These people aren't really Jews. They're messing with our faith. So they had an issue with Samaritans. Jesus is also talking to a woman, right? And for many of us today, we might think straight away, so what? But back then in those days, a Jewish man did not speak to a woman especially a woman on her own without anyone being there, and especially a woman he did not know before, right? You just didn't do it, but he's doing it. And thirdly, he's talking to a woman who came out to the well at the sixth hour. Now, this is still like kind of nice weather here in Jerusalem, but no matter what time of year, when you get to midday here in the Middle East, it can be rather unpleasant. And all of the women, because back then it was the women, they would go to the well in the early morning 
or in the evening. They would never go at midday because it was just miserable. This woman is going out in the middle of the day, which is a massive red flag, which basically, she was basically wearing a t-shirt that said, I am an immoral person that nobody else in the village likes. Okay? And so Jesus goes up to her. He breaks the racial barrier. He breaks the social barrier. He breaks the gender barrier. And he even breaks, Christians, hear well, he breaks the moral barrier in order to talk to this woman, in order to love her, in order to share the gospel with her. The gospel has to be for absolutely everyone. And it can't be something that you attain. It can't be something that you have to do. When you try to achieve something, right, you've got to sort of summon up the strength, yeah, summon up something to be able to achieve it, to change something, to, to see that transformation in your life. But the gospel can't be like that, because if it was like that, it would be for only those people, or it would at least privilege the people who could do that, who could push themselves, who could get to the place where they can change themselves. But the gospel doesn't do that. It's not something that you have to attain or to achieve. It is a free gift. And so it is for everyone. It is offered to all who would like to receive the gift. In fact, if the gospel was to be privileged for anyone, it would actually be for people at the lower rungs of the social ladder, rather the higher ones. Why? Because the people on the higher end of the social ladder, the achievers, they tend to reject gifts. They tend to reject things that are free. Why? Because they want to attain it. They want to achieve it. Pride prevents them from taking grasp of something that is offered to them for free. And so if the gift of the gospel privileges anyone, it privileges the people at the bottom of the ladder. Notice, Jesus doesn't privilege the higher rungs of the social or economic ladder. So neither should we. So that is the breadth of the gospel. Now let's look at the process of the gospel. And the way that the gospel changes our lives is actually gradual. It's bit by bit. And you notice that just in this conversation. Jesus is gentle with this lady. He's taking time. When they begin the conversation about the water, she says, ooh, ooh, I want water. And so then Jesus switches it and he goes, so go get your husband. Now, her response is that she has no husband. She leaves out the difficult information about why she has no husband right now, but she just says she has no husband. Why is she leaving it out? Because she wants him to assume that she's a widow, right? The only way that it would be normal for a woman, probably of, of that age, she's probably not a young girl, of that age, to not have a husband is that she's a widow. And so she wants to leave that to be an assumption. But then Jesus challenges her. Why is she trying to pretend things? Why is she not answering the questions that he is asking or responding to them? Because every single time, this woman is trying to deflect from the personal. He says, I've got water that'll change your life. And she says, oh, that way I won't have to come out to the well. And he says, where's your husband? Oh, I have no husband. And then he says, okay, well, you've, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. And then she goes, oh, you're a prophet. Ooh, so let's talk about whether the temple should be here in Samaria or in Jerusalem. She tries to deflect it. Let's get into a theological, political argument. Anything 
but get involved in my personal life. Anything but actually go deep into who I am in order that I might change in any way at all. In Psalm 73, we read those verses of a man, a believer at this point, she's not a believer, of a man who was coming to God and said, I hated you. I was a brute. I was terrible. But God comes, but then he recognizes afterwards and he says, but I recognize now, the entire time, you were holding my hand. You were walking through, you were, you were with me at each step of the way through this long and gradual process. My wife, Adele, is a ceramicist. And as a ceramicist, she loves her gadgets. She loves the things that she has, you know, to help the ceramics go well. Now, when she makes a slab, what she used to have to do was she would have to get a big piece of clay, wedge it, make sure there's no air in it, and then she would have to roll it and roll it and roll it and roll it. And then she has these little things that literally look like kidneys, right? And they're actually called in Hebrew at least, clayot. They're called kidneys, right? And then she takes these kidney things and then she smooths it and smooths it and smooths it and smooths it and rolls it and smooths it and it takes ages. Now, recently, we bought my wife a slab roller, okay? And it basically looks like a gigantic pasta maker and you take the clay and you just, and then out it comes. And then you just adjust it to make it thinner and out it comes. Adele loves it. Because to make plates, you don't actually need the gradual process. It could be mechanical. But to change a heart, to change a person, Jesus takes his time. And with each one of us, he rolls and he rolls and he smooths and he smooths and he rolls and he smooths. He takes the time with each and every one of us. Because you can't get out of the truth, of the reality, that in order to change your heart, in order to transform, you have to get personal. And that just takes time. So the gospel transformation has breadth. It is for everyone. And gospel transformation is a process. It takes time. It's patient. And Jesus will walk with us every step of the way. But gospel change is also powerful. I want to go back to Jesus' statement that he is offering her living water. Now, according to Google, my body, a man's body, is 60% water. I don't know if my percentage is actually that. I've got a bit more chub than most. But let's just say most men, 60% water. Women, 55% water. We are very much connected to this thing, this water. We need it. We must have it. And when we're thirsty, yeah, it doesn't feel right. It feels wrong. I need to drink the water. And when I'm deprived of water, it actually becomes painful and really quite difficult. And then when we get to water, when we finally have that sip, it is like the sweetest thing in the world. Jesus is using this truth that everyone knows, especially in those days, this need, this desperate need for water to explain to the woman that what he is offering her is something that her soul so desperately needs the way that her body needs water. That is what he is offering her. Eternal life, he says. 
He is offering her eternal life. Nothing less than God's assurance of grace, of love, of pardon, and of his presence. Now, this has to be by God's grace. It can't be, as I said earlier, it can't be by achievement. It can't be something that you achieve by pushing your way or getting there. When a law enters our life, it comes against our desire. When grace enters our life, it comes and fulfills our desire. We respond to a law because we have to. We respond to a grace giver because we want to. Brothers and sisters, if you have experienced God's grace, then you have experienced something that feels like water in a parched mouth. And when you take that sip, my wife's looking at me like, sweetheart, do you want some water? A little bit, sure. That was planned. (laughs) Oh, that's good. When we receive that water, when we receive that precious gift, it's not something that you can just take a sip of. It's not like I'm just a little dry in the mouth, I can just have a sip. When you are parched, when you are desperate, when you are empty, and you drink from that living water, you don't just take a sip. You dive right in. You want it all because you know what it feels like. I am changed. I am different. I am not as I once was. The power of the gospel is that grace grows in your heart. And God is taking that time to slowly process, roll you and smooth you and roll you and smooth you. And you know that he is doing it and he is changing you. Not because you're pushing yourself, not because you're going wild to try and make a difference, but because he is there with you. So that is the power of the gospel. We've talked about the breadth and we've talked about um, the process. Now finally, how the gospel goes to the very bottom of our hearts. Um, I want, to see, I want to see if you can raise your hands. Raise your hand if you have ever read a book that promised to change your life. Anyone? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think just about every day nowadays, I go onto YouTube. Yep, I go to YouTube every day. I go to YouTube every day, and I see a video that also tells me, seven steps your boss never told you. Right? Ten things you can do to get an amazing body. Right? Every single day, um, I see that out there. Now, the problem with those videos is that they always go to one of two methods. And historically, there have really just been two methods for changing your life. The ancient one and the modern one. The ancient one is this. Focus your mind. Think about what it is you're trying to do. Understand it. And then by your will... Push yourself to change. That is the ancient method of change. It's about understanding, thinking, and engaging your will in order to make a difference in your day. 
The modern method is a little different. The modern one is about your emotions. Right? And today, the message will tend to be, find out what it is that you really want, what you really love in your life, and express that, and be that, and that is how you will be your authentic self. Right? This is the ancient method and the modern method of change, or coming to the place where you will feel good or be good. But both of these don't actually reach the heart, even though at different times we have called the heart the seat of the will or the seat of the emotions. They don't actually reach down into it. When Jesus is talking to the woman about the water, she responds, yeah, cool, I don't want to go to the well anymore. This will be awesome. And then Jesus says something strange. He switches straight away and he says, okay, go call your husband. Now, when we read that initially, we think maybe one of two things. We think maybe, okay, maybe this, the whole conversation isn't recorded word for word. Or we think, well, why is he just changing the subject? Why is he just flipping it like that? But the reality is, I don't actually think he's changing the subject at all. What he's saying is, I'm offering you something that will come in and change you from the inside out. And then when he asks her, go call your husband, what he's actually showing her is that she's already been digging wells. You've already been looking for something to change your life. You've already been trying to find something to satisfy you deeply within at the bottom of your heart. And you've been doing it with men. You've been trying to use men to satisfy the deep longing of your heart. It's not going to work. He's saying by the end of this conversation that if you try to find this water in anything else, in men, in women, in being a parent, in money, in power, in romance, in fun, if you try to find it in anything else, you will thirst again. You will always be looking for the next fun weekend, the next exciting man, the beautiful woman, the next time that your children will turn to you and say, Mommy, Daddy, I love you. You'll always be enslaved to those things. Why do I say enslaved? Because they'll make you earn it. They'll make you earn it. They will push you and make you feel that if you are not perfect and you are not amazing, then you'll never feel that again. You'll never feel fulfilled or deeply satisfied or connected. What Jesus is saying is, I won't enslave you. But the only way you'll get it is through me and by grace. Now, if we go with the struggle to the ancient method, right, we find ourselves saying, oh, I keep like going after men or I keep going after fun. It's not good. I have to stop myself and I try to crush myself and stop it. Yeah. And then we give in and it explodes. If we try to go to emotions, well, we've already failed because that's just going to tell us, do the thing that you love, right? That's what this woman is doing already. So how do we get out of it? How do we come, become free from this enslavement? And Jesus responds, and this is remarkable. He comes to her and he tells her this. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to her, women, believe me. Now, in the version that we read, it says the time is coming. But I'm reading the ESV here. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. So he does actually sort of get in there. FYI, nah, it's not Samaria, it's Jerusalem, sorry. Then verse 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must be in spirit and truth. Everywhere in the Gospel of John that Jesus uses this term, the hour, he is referring to the cross. Every single time he uses this word, the hour, he is referring to the cross. And he's saying, yeah, temples, real temple, not real temple, but in truth, what I am going to do is take away the need for you to rush to a temple. And I am going to create a temple that spans over the entire world in the hearts of men and women all over this planet. And how does he do it? By on the cross saying, I thirst. Now, many of us might say, well, of course he said, I thirst. He's on the cross. It's not pleasant. He wants to drink of water. But he's talking about a thirst that is much more deeper than that. Not a physical thirst, a cosmic thirst, a spiritual thirst. Because there on the cross, Jesus was cut from the source of joy and of hope and of love. He was cut from his Father in heaven. And there on that cross, he really thirsted. He experienced the burning sensation of being cut and left carrying the sins of the world so that we may drink, so that we may experience freedom, so that we can now look at a man and look at a woman and they can be just a man and just a woman and we can love them and engage them, but they're not the ultimate thing. They're not the thing that we're grasping in order to feel love. But Jesus is the one that we can go to who for free without your effort, offers you, accept my love, because I thirsted. Do you know how radically your life can change when it is not your effort, but rather God's grace that comes in and changes the very structure of the way you love? There is a book written by a man called Langdon Gilkey. He was um, an English professor in China and when the Japanese invaded, he was taken to a compound, a compound called Shantung. In this compound, there were 2,000 inmates, all shoved into a small space. And straight away, Langdon, knowing that, um, believing that you know, life is about um, secularism, education, you don't need religion, he enters this place and he sees the educated fall apart. They become selfish. They become cruel. They start stealing one from another. Now, you might think, well, okay, so then did he turn to religion? No, he didn't. Langdon also looked at the missionaries and the priests that were trapped in there, and they were doing exactly the same. They were couching it in religious words, but that's what they were doing. They were stealing. They were taking. And he was shocked. And for the first time in his life, he realized that man's problem is not his lack of education or his lack of religious practice. Man's problem is sin, a deep-seated issue inside man's hearts. And then Langdon saw a man that made him think completely differently. His name was Eric Little. And Langdon saw Eric working in the camp 
and caring and loving always, of being good humor. He wrote this, It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Eric Little, a Presbyterian ministry, missionary, maintained that good humor, overcome the anger and the frustration. Langdon talked a lot about how everyone just fell into anger. And at the end of his time there, he wrote this, Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Human pride may win the battle, and then religion can and does become one more instrument of human sin. But if there, the self does meet God and his grace and so surrenders to something beyond its self-interest, then Christian faith can prove to be the needed and rare release for human self-concern. Brothers and sisters, be like Langdon. See beyond your self-concern. See beyond the emotions and the attempts of the will and trust yourself to the gospel's transformation in your life. See its breadth, its power, its process, and the way it can reach to the bottom of your hearts. Because when you change, that's what this world needs. That's what this world so desperately needs. And that's how we will change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and thank you for your love and your goodness and your transformation in our lives. We pray, O Lord, that you would bring it about, that you would allow us to see you, to see what you have done on our behalf, to see your thirst and to drink from your most precious well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.